Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and who love food and history and food history and crafts. And we normally like to start the podcast by talking about what we have been making and or baking recently. So what have you been up to, Liz? I don't think I talked about this last time. I made brioche for the first time. Exciting. And then I made basically like a cinnamon roll, except instead of cinnamon, it was black sesame paste. That sounds interesting. It was good. really good. You know how black sesame is really like nutty? Mm. It was it was one of those things that is like this could be a pudding or a breakfast. <laughs> that is a good breakfast. Mm. And I finished my lace shawl. Oh, amazing. I had you know that experience when you've knitted lace of like, oh, this looks a bit rubbish actually, and then you you block it and say, like, Oh, there's the pattern. Yeah. <laughs> the lace transformation experience. It was also a lot bigger than I thought it would end up, but... Oh, yeah, they grow. Yeah. It's great. It's probably the biggest lace thing I've made. Oh, wow. It's 140 rows. And something like 550 stitches by the time I got to the last row working. Yeah, it was like the rows were down the two sides rather than along the top, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, they can be an intimidating level. So it's quite big. It's like, oh, I'm really glad I have these like metre-long circulars. <laughs> that is an achievement. I'm, I'm very pleased with it. What have you been up to? Um... I mainly um working on my quilt because that's fun. Um mm-hmm. I'll I'll put a picture in the Twitter. Remind myself to do that. Um it's coming on well. I've got a couple of rows sewn together. Um it looks so cool. I'm really happy. Um so anyone who's interested in that, uh you can check out my Instagram, Solarpunk Stitches, um, or look on the Twitter. Uh, it's a English paper piece to quilt, so um, I'm basically sewing tiny patches together um, to make the quilt top at the moment, and it's fun. Um, oh, and also in uh, slightly different news, um, I well, most this is mostly Joe, but I'm taking the credit because it was me that found um, the cool bit of shell at the beach. <laughs> so we did we did a bit of jewelry making. Um, I found a bit of oyster shell at the beach that was like perfectly uh, sort of teardrop shaped um, and it was really pretty. So Joe uh, polished it for me and like um, sand- sanded, not sanded, but like um, I sanded the edges <laughs> and uh, drilled a hole in it uh, so that I could wear it as a pendant. And that uh, is very cool. It is a very cute necklace. Can um, we have a picture of that as well? Yes. It's very shiny and smooth, and I like it. 
Um, yeah. Oh, and I also made my first ever meringues. Wow, nice. Uh, yeah, it was it was a fun time. Um, we have a lot of black currants and red currants, so I made these little um, sort of biscuit size meringues with like berries in the middle, and it was really nice. Oh, like a little pavlova. Uh, I guess, yeah, sort of like a, a mini pavlova, except they the berries were like baked in, mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah, so that worked quite well because um the uh red currants are quite tangy and the meringues are like really sweet so it was sort of like a sweet and sour dessert um but i think um they were they were really good for a first attempt i think but um i foolishly thought that just greasing the baking tray would be enough and it was not they completely stuck to the tray and they just (laughs) kind of broke when i (laughs) tried to take them off um and also i think it said to whip the like meringue mixture to stiff peaks but I think I, I stopped whipping a bit too soon because I had never made them before and I was really worried about overbeating it um so I feel like I feel like my peaks could have been stiffer but all in all pretty good <laughs> and the main thing is did they taste good they did they were delicious they're like little uh it's, it's, it's just like eating a breath of like fruity air (laughs) (laughs) sounds delicious (laughs) anyway should I talk about something else well what are you talking about today because I think it is your turn it is um well it being summer over here um a lot of people are thinking about going on holiday and that normally involves traveling um often on some kind of public transport like a plane or a train um so i thought i would uh finally get around to talking about the stagecoach uh which i oh, mentioned fun. uh oh, we've we've probably mentioned a few times on the podcast but um i sort of made a mental note to do an episode on it one day um after the episode that we did on the white heart inn in lewis um the cookbook from there uh, which was a coaching inn so yeah we're talking about the stagecoach tell, tell me the tale of the stagecoach <laughs> so uh stagecoach is an early form of public transport um it's a big wagon, basically. Um, so a four-wheeled coach, usually drawn by four to six horses. And the reason it's called a stagecoach um, is because it is a coach that goes in stages. Um, so they would travel in stages of about 10 to 15 miles. Um, and then when they got to the next staging post, they would change horses. Um, so they would have like fresh um non-tired horses and then continue to the next stage um so it was yeah basically an early form of organized public transport um that could get you there quicker um and um if you didn't have your own transport would be able to get you there in the first place um yeah so before this um you pretty much anyone if you could afford if you had your own coach and horses 
that was great. <laughs> um, but if not, you weren't getting anywhere fast unless you could hitch a ride. The yeah, the stagecoach was, I guess, probably the first form of organised public transport. It's got quite a romantic image, I guess. Like when you think of like, I guess people would probably know it from um, like the highwayman robbing a stagecoach dramatically. Yeah, like the first thing I think of is definitely like Dick Turpin. <laughs> yeah. Um, or maybe um, talking about the American West from media like the 1939 film Stagecoach, which was John Wayne's breakout role. Uh, which is a swashbuckling tale of a bunch of strangers on, on a stagecoach ride. Um, and I, as far as I know, they could be quite dramatic occasionally, but I'll get to that. Uh, so the first recorded stagecoach journey um, that I know of started in 1610, actually, which is earlier than I thought. Yeah, that's that's ridiculously old for, like... <laughs> anything that could be vaguely classed as public transport yeah <laughs> um well this was like again i guess um a big time for trade and mm. apparently there it, there had been for a while um specifically in scotland actually that we have scotland to thank for the the stagecoach apparently um there had been um sort of efforts to get um a reliable method of like transport and thoroughfare set up between towns um so the first one ran between edinburgh and leith um and by the middle of the century um there was there was sort of an in infrastructure um that was in place um however the early stagecoaches like weren't really very good because the roads were not very good um, in fact, in a lot of places, they weren't <laughs> like you would get. Oh, the, oh, as in like the roads just weren't. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, there wasn't great road infrastructure at this point, mm. um, and uh, so they could only travel about five miles an hour um, because faster than walking, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and like you're out of the elements, I guess, and like possibly safer um and sitting down yeah and and sitting down <laughs> but um if the weather was really bad you're probably not getting anywhere um mm -hmm. but if they went any faster like people would get horribly jolted around because spring suspension had not yet been invented <laughs> so i don't know if you can imagine like just charging full speed in and a non-suspension coach in on just a, a cart wooden track. box. <laughs> yeah, you're essentially just in a box on wheels. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, there's a description um, of one of the early stagecoach routes. Um, which was between Edinburgh and Glasgow, so again, Scotland. Um, and this one, uh, I'm trying to check. Oh, okay, sorry, I've misread. This one is actually 1753, um, by which time things had got a little bit better. Um, 
but this one um so in the meantime uh steel spring suspension has been invented <laughs> excellent that's what we need <laughs> amazing uh which among improvements to the roads has increased the speed of stagecoaches to uh as much as 10 miles an hour okay now we're talking <laughs> exactly um by the golden age of the stagecoach uh by the the 1820s we've got up to 15 uh in some cases we are really flying is that safe is that a safe <laughs> speed to move i don't know who knows what it does to people's internal organs <laughs> uterus might just fly out <laughs> Um, so this Sorry, one in, just in case that sounded completely nonsensical to people it's a thing people said about trains going too fast it is it is <laughs> i mean it is nonsensical but you know context well those trains were traveling pretty fast for the time given that the stagecoach <laughs> was 15 miles an hour max <laughs> um, but in fact um the early ones um, being, you know, non-suspension um, and pretty uncomfortable um, were described in 1617 uh, by one writer as covered wagons in which passengers are carried to and fro. But this kind of journeying is very tedious, so that only women and people of inferior condition travel in this sort. <laughs> people of inferior condition. <laughs> <laughs> um... Presumably, people who don't have their own horses. Um, oh, I thought it meant like people who are weaker, like old people and disabled people. I yeah, I think it probably means that as well, like people who can't ride for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> so there's a way of phrasing that that could cover both, conceivably given the period. <laughs> maybe it does cover both. Uh, maybe it does. Um, well, actually, good point. I guess presumably if you didn't own your own horse, you might walk. Um, mm. But then it does sound like a bit faster, depending on your walking speed. Um, <laughs> who knows? I, I don't know what their condition is, but it's, it's more inferior. manly to do it yourself. <laughs> it's the 17th century. You've got to do things for yourself or they won't get done. <laughs> so... Uh, this route from uh, between Edinburgh and Glasgow uh, in 1753, apparently there had been attempts to sort of get it going as early as 1678, but it didn't actually get going until 1753, and it was um, Great sort of, job, guys! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sort of crowdfunded. Um, it was set up by a merchant in Edinburgh um, who obtained from the Privy Council of Edinburgh the exclusive privilege of having uh, the route to the route operated by himself privately for seven years and an assurance against his horses being pressed for any kind of public service <laughs> which implies that was a thing yeah I don't know maybe maybe like would people conscript horses I guess like like in wars I mean it says any kind of public service so maybe that could include like i don't know roadworks <laughs> um, i like, want to know about these these horses civic building projects um there's a footnote uh 
Oh, it's just where that comes from. Okay, but it looks like it's a fairly long text and I am not going to do that right now. <laughs> anyway, so uh, it was part funded by the magistrates of Glasgow. Um, and as part of this agreement, um, William Hume, who was operating this service, was obliged to have in readiness a sufficient strong coach with six able horses to be driven with servants and furniture. I presume that means like a proper, pro properly outfitted coach for the convenience of all travellers who shall think fit to make use thereof for their journey betwixt Glasgow and Edinburgh and which coach shall contain six persons and shall go uh, there each week betwixt the foresaid two places or twice a week if he shall have encouragement. Um, and that's... I love the uh, wording. I know, there's a lot of great language in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and that each person going passenger therein shall have the liberty to take in one bag or portmanteau for carrying of their cloaks uh, and such like. So what you're telling me is luggage restrictions are really old. <laughs> yes. So you get a cabin bag. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, does it say what it costs? I've encountered something that's in that age. Oh, okay, there are, there's winter and summer prices. I'm guessing more in the winter? Yes, um, but then I guess to be fair, there's probably more wear and tear on the coach in the winter, mm. and like, worse travel conditions, so, uh... There I thought off-peak travel was meant to be cheaper. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I quite, I quite liked that little quote. Uh, that is also... Um, oh, this is the one I meant to say first. Um, this is going back to 1649, actually. Um, uh, describing the stage, the sort of newly implemented stagecoach network um, as a great way to travel, an excellent arrangement of conveying, uh, oh, there is of late such an admirable commodiousness, both for men and women, to travel from London to the principal towns in the country, that the like hath not been known in the world, and that is by stagecoaches, wherein any one may be transported to any place sheltered from foul weather and foul ways, free of free from endamaging of one's health and one's body, by the hard jogging or over-violent motion, and this not only at a low price, about a shilling for every five miles, but with such velocity and speed in one hour as that the posts in some foreign countries make in a day. <laughs> I mean, that does sound pretty great. <laughs> it, it's a great advertisement, isn't it? That's from the um, Anglia Notitia, or the present state of England, uh, by Edward Chamberlain in 1649. <laughs> um, is, I, I love the word endamaging. Mm -hmm. That's that's not a word you really cover for us. <laughs> that's a new one on me. Um, also, admirable commodiousness. I'm going to start using that. Uh, so yeah, that that is a 17th century one. Um, going back to the 18th century. Um, now that there is this much improved stagecoach network, 
um, that is uh, taking people at uh, you know much better speeds. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain things that happen due to this. So one of them is the development of coaching ins. So uh, like the white heart, so um, at the stages while the horses were being changed, the passengers would get out um, and they could go into the inn and have a drink or something to eat um, or they could stay there the night if they wanted to. Um, there might even be some entertainment. Uh, so I, yeah, kind of kind of like a motorway service station, I guess. Which, to be fair, coach like modern coach trips do stop at. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I guess yeah, I guess that's the modern day coaching in. Um, so yeah, a lot of these uh, places you can kind of tell them because they have uh, like a big kind of hole in the middle for the coach to go through into like the yard um, by the stables. Uh, so there's one in the next village to me, actually, the Red Lion. Um, yeah, um, they can be quite distinctive. Um, and a lot of these are still around, still pubs, um, in Britain. Um, uh, yeah, so this whole business sort of sprang up, uh, around catering to passengers on the stagecoach. Um, uh, but then also it had an impact on... Uh, the post or the mail. Um, so the post, why, why in Britain we call it the post actually? Um, that's because um, it was a post travel service. So uh, there would be riders, mounted riders carrying the mail between posts um, where the postmaster would oh. um, take the letters from the, that were going to the local area and then um, they would give back the letters that were going on and they would um, give them the new letters from this area that were going that way. Um, and then those would be given to the new rider who would go on and then, um, yeah, so they would, that, that was like sort of the fastest method of getting mail around the country at the time. However, it was quite inefficient because they kept getting robbed all the time. <laughs> That that will happen, yeah. <laughs> Some valuable stuff in those parcels, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. So, like, there was there was a mail system, but like, it wasn't amazing. Um, and meanwhile, the stage ho- the stagecoach had been coming on in leaps and bounds. Um, and there was a guy who worked for uh, the. Uh, the Royal Mail who kind of saw an opportunity um, let me find my notes about him was it Moist von Litvig? it wasn't Moist von Litvig but it kind of was in a sense <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was actually a guy called John Palmer, which is a very unmoist von Litwick type name. Mm-hmm. Um, if anyone hasn't read Going Postal by Terry Pratchett, by the way, fantastic. Uh, so he worked for, in fact, uh, not at the time Royal Mail, the British Post Office. Um, and he had to travel for his job uh, quite regularly. 
and he traveled on the stagecoach because that's what he did. And while he was traveling on the stagecoach, um, he thought, hang on, this service is great. Why are we still doing the post riding? Like, why, why do we not change to this? Why don't we just get coaches? Um, and so he took this idea to the management of the post office and they basically said, well, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And he was like, well, I think it is broke, actually. I, I mean, <laughs> half our post gets stolen. It's very demonstrably <laughs> broke. <laughs> uh, so he actually went to uh, William Pitt the Younger, who at that time was Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, future Prime Minister, um, youngest ever Prime Minister, I believe. Um, and uh, Pitt... Uh, gave him permission to do a trial run between Bristol and London. Uh, so under the old post system, that would take 36 hours. The stagecoach did it in 16. Nice. That was in 1784. <laughs> so over half um, the time cut, mm -hmm. uh, basically. Um, and it just took off from there. So it was very quickly extended um, and he was awarded the position of Comptroller General of the Post Office, which is a great title. You know, I've always wondered what a Comptroller actually is. I don't actually know. <laughs> I don't know what it means to Comptroll. If someone knows how one Comptrolls, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds important. Mm. Um, so then you get the famous Royal Mail coach um, which which people did end up like hitchhiking on those sometimes as well didn't they um, yeah I think so it's um, like a thing like it's it's faster than a regular state coach so if, if you can get in good with the driver you can get places wow, quicker oh, nice it's always great when you know a guy <laughs> I just love that full circle aspect of it. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, the fact that, that they could travel so fast. The first um, flying coach service, which was um, Manchester and London, between Manchester and London, um, was advertised as taking four and a half days, um, and in fact it took three, with an average speed of eight miles per hour at the time. Nice. Um, so only three days was amazing at the time. In fact, the advertisement was, however incredible it may appear, this coach will actually, barring accidents, arrive in London <laughs> four days and a half after leaving Manchester. I love that disclaimer. <laughs> like, we'll do our best. <laughs> Um, yes, it, oh, in fact, um, the one from the London, London York route, um, earlier in 1698 is actually even better. Go on. <laughs> Whoever is desirous of going between London and York or York and London, let them repair to the Black Swan in Holborn or the Black Swan in Coney Street, York, where they will be convey conveyed in a stagecoach, if God permits, <laughs> which starts every Thursday at five in the morning. <laughs> 
That is wonderful, but I'm also slightly distracted by how great it is that the pubs have the same name. Um, so the the flying coach, um, going back to the mid eighteenth century, um, a, an even more amazing one was the Liverpool to London route, um, that that started three years later, um, and it took an absolutely unprecedented three days from Liverpool to London, um, so yeah. That that one was even more impressive. So yeah, it was it was going pretty comparatively fast by this point, and it was like the way to get around um, if you wanted to use public transport. Um, so I've I've pretty much focused on Britain so far, um, but this certainly was not the only place the stagecoach was happening. Um, continental Europe, uh, America. Um, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and I want to talk about the French stagecoaches, or diligences, as they were known. Oh, that's a good name. The diligence, which is fantastic. Um, So these were a little different, uh, apparently. They were quite big. Um, and you could fit people on the top of the stagecoach as well as in the middle, which um, I'm pretty sure was also the same, like across the stagecoach world. Um, but apparently these were like particularly big um, stagecoaches uh, or coaches, and um, they had a bunch of pockets inside um, that people could put their stuff in. So one traveller described what do you mean it as by pockets, uh, like on the inside, like. Um, so in the like lining of the coach essentially okay so like actual pockets yeah so like inside the coach around the edge there are pockets um so it says the inside which which is capacious and lofty will hold six people in great comfort and is lined with padded leather and surrounded with little pockets in which travelers deposit their bread snuff nightcaps and pocket handkerchiefs um the essentials (laughs) The essentials. Uh, From the roof, there's a large net, which is generally crowded with hats, swords, and bandboxes. And then the rest of your luggage goes on the roof. Um, So they've added checked luggage, it's not just cabin bags. Yeah, but the description is kind of hilarious, because it says, um, upon the roof, um, which is generally filled with six or seven persons more, and a heap of luggage, um, which... Uh, generally presents a pile half as high again as the coach, which is secured by ropes and chains. This sounds safe. <laughs> and the body of the carriage um, is actually not um, its string suspension, uh, but it rests on leather thongs. That's what's so, like <laughs> Yeah, it is essentially kind of just like cradled on these leather thongs. Um, which was also used in America. Um, I think the famous Concord coach uh, was um, also used that um, method because uh, apparently it was more comfortable than uh, spring suspension even. Uh, you weren't being like jolted around as much. Um, but yeah, but this... <laughs> It's quite, it's quite an interesting picture. Um, 
And I mean, these, these could travel at quite a gallop. Um, and in fact, when we start to get into uh, the age of the railway, which in, in the 1830s, which did eventually kill off the stagecoach, um, there is a, <laughs> there's a picture, which I will send you, and I will also put this on the Twitter, uh, along with probably a couple of other images of coaches looking cool. Uh, but this image is uh, sort of a crossover between the stagecoach and the early rail. Um, so the stagecoach has been around. Um, it's a, a freight coach. So it's collected a bunch of packages um, or, or goods um, from, uh, you know, around the area. Uh, and it's transferred them to the nearest railway station. Um, and the body of the coach is being lifted off the wheels and transferred to a railroad car. It's a shipping container. I guess, yeah. But it's also a coach. That's great, though. Like, I, I know that, like, early passenger rail cars were basically just... Like basically just stagecoaches attached to the to the locos, but I never considered the idea of being able to transfer the same thing between the two. Uh, yeah, it, that is it's... great. That is just that is literally a shipping container. <laughs> um, I have I don't know if it was ever done with passengers, but that would be hilarious. <laughs> oh, it'd be fun to ride. Yeah, <laughs> um, you just get picked up and deposited on the train. Uh, so that was 1844 um, that reminds me of a conversation that I had recently in which uh, we were talking about wouldn't it be hilarious if trains moved like those caterpillars that like bunch in the middle <laughs> it'd be something anyway speaking of trains <laughs> uh, the development of the rail industry totally killed uh, the stagecoach the era of stagecoach travel Stagecoach travel was over until oh. the bus, <laughs> essentially. I mean, the stagecoach as we know it is gone, um, mm. but coach travel is not. Um, in fact, there is as a well-known bus company in the UK called Stagecoach. Oh um, yeah, they're the ones that are like they cost a little bit more than Megabus, but they are infinitely more reliable and comfortable. <laughs> I mean, Megabus is the absolute bottom of the barrel of long-distance coach travel. Yeah. Stagecoach, stagecoach I can get on with. <laughs> Hell like, is a Megabus at night on the motorway. Yeah. yeah. But, but stagecoach do, like, bus, like, it within, like, normal... I'm trying to work out how to phrase it. They do, like, what you would think of as a regular bus as well. Yeah, as they, the they run local bus services. Um, yeah, yeah, that's what I was trying to think of. <laughs> just trying to be like, they do normal buses. <laughs> they do normal bus things. <laughs> you know, buses. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what the other one is. Is it National Express? The, like, yeah, National Express is, is a big one. Um if if I was lucky or feeling fancy, uh, I used to get a National Express. 
Um, <laughs> but the reason that um, I personally um, have taken a lot of coaches to travel around the country is because the trains are expensive these days, or at least they are in my country. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Which sucks because I absolutely love trains and I hate coach travel. But um, I, yeah, I, I guess for some of the same reasons as a stagecoach traveller might have in that you are just cramped together with a bunch of other people in a moving box for yeah. hours on end. Um, but fortunately not for days at a time. <laughs> as it might have happened in the stagecoach era. Unless you go on a coach trip. True. Because those, oh, those are Lord. a thing. It's those like, are a thing. It's like, imagine a cruise, except instead of on a fun boat, you're on a bus. <laughs> that's, a, that's a coach trip. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's cheap often. There can be a lot of deals and like packages. Yeah. Um, yeah, so um, yeah, you've got National Express, um, you've got the Greyhound, I think, in America. Flickbus is a, a famous uh, European long-distance coach company. Um, yeah, there's a lot of them around, and, and they are back, um, because it is often cheaper um, or more convenient to travel by coach in And the trains situations. here and in the US are always on strike at the moment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. So yeah, coach travel is not entirely dead, although the era of the stagecoach may have passed. Um, but you still do get the motorway service station stop where you can get out and have a little drink, get some snacks. Mm-hmm. I do like a services. Yeah, it's I, honestly like it was like the best thing arriving at one and like being able to actually get off the coach and stretch your legs <laughs> and like go and get a drink. Amazing. Just think about, we had a couple of school trips that were on coaches and halfway through we'd stop at our services. And one time it was at Westmoreland, which is the best services because it's huge <laughs> and it's got a duck pond. <laughs> what? That's great. Best services. <laughs> I Unfortunately, I don't have a particular knowledge of service stations to have an opinion on which is the best. I just have stopped in that one a lot because like... <laughs> It's on the way to a lot of places if you live in the Northwest. Uh, so that that was a fun um, flying journey, if you will, through the history of the stagecoach. Um, and I hope you enjoyed it, everyone. That was fun, and I might have to watch Stagecoach now. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's one of the uh, most popular... Westerns ever, I think. Um, I think the Tarantino film Hateful Eight was somewhat inspired by Stagecoach. I I have not seen that. I'm not the biggest fan of Tarantino. I'm also not the biggest fan of westerns, but I'm I'm trying because I think I suspect that like there's a group of them that are the ones that you get shown by like male relatives <laughs> maybe aren't aren't the most representative of the genre as a whole, but they have a cool guy in them. <laughs> yeah or the ones that are always on tv at christmas mm-hmm. rpg ideas should be good right but what this podcast supposes is maybe they don't have to be the probably bad podcast brings you ideas like dire humans fight your gm in real life and what if there is an eye laser man listen to the probably bad podcast available everywhere podcasts exist and some places where they don't
So, what is the local larder for this episode? Well, you're aware of the bread poll that I've I've been running on Tumblr that I think we've mentioned yes. in the previous episode. Yes, it is ongoing now. Um, and it is Tumblr. when this I think when this episode comes out, it will be the second semi final. Excitement! Help um, us decide the best bread. <laughs> but one thing that has happened is. The Swedish side of Tumblr has found it and is lobbying hard for um, Lucicata or St. Lucia buns, which we have meant we have talked about before. Yes, we did a local ladder on those. Um, um, and they do sound delicious. I have not yet had the opportunity to have one. They do. They have defeated bagels in the poll. What? Oh. Well which played, is controversial. Sweet. They defeated bagels 50.1 to 49.9%. Um... But I thought that I would acknowledge... I can make a, a Brexit joke if I was that way inclined. But I'm not going to, sorry, carry on. But I thought that I would acknowledge the Swedes and talk about uh, Lutefisk. Okay. What is um, Lutefisk? So it literally means lie cod. Okay. Um, and is claimed by both Sweden and Norway as their, one of their foods. Oh, controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has one of those accidental discovery stories that's almost definitely not true. I love those. Um, where a Viking, who was either Swedish or Norwegian, was hanging cod to dry, and they were attacked by some other Vikings. Yeah. And it was also raining, so the lye from the ash from the fire ended up on the fish, and it dried out with the lye, and then some very hungry people came along, and they ate it, and it tasted nice. Okay, that is quite a convoluted story. (laughs) There's also the story of St. Patrick trying to poison Vikings by soaking fish in lye. (laughs) And then the Vikings deciding, actually, it's delicious. (laughs) That's quite Um, a power move. Which does not work out at all in terms of when St. Patrick was alive. Um, (laughs) But I enjoy it. Maybe he came back just to try and poison them with fish. Um, But we do know that it was being eaten in at least by 1555 because it shows up in Olaus Magnus's Historia de Gentibus Septentrionalibus or Description of the Northern People Um, I'm quoting now The dry stockfish is left in strong lye for two days then it is rinsed in fresh water for one day before being cooked and eaten It is served with with salted butter and is highly regarded even by kings Ooh Okay, that sounds like it might be good. I was going to say, does the lie become not dangerous through that process? Well, it's it's a question of um, concentration. Okay. Because lie washes are actually also used for pretzels and sometimes bagels. Wow. Ah. Um, is what makes them so shiny. Ah. And apparently it's actually also used to cure olives. Okay. Um, 
so I mean, eat, eating stuff that's been soaked in lye is not exclusive to whichever country Lutefisk is actually from. <laughs> um, but obviously the process is very controlled now. Um, you know, drying in big industrial kilns and very carefully checking the concentration and putting the, the lye solution together. Um, although interestingly, because it's, it's also known for not smelling particularly good and is actually classified as a toxic substance um, under workplace safety laws in Wisconsin. <laughs> but only Wisconsin or...? <laughs> Well, the um, <laughs> the article that I read specifically mentioned section one hundred one point five eight two JF of Wisconsin's workplace safety laws. Amazing! Um, I I would love it if Wisconsin is the only place in the world that bans this fish in the workplace. Well, I mean, elsewhere in the US, um, there's Minnesota, which you know, is very well known for having a high um, Scandinavian-American population. Like, they ah. have the Minnesota Vikings. Um, is a... I'm trying to remember that. I think it's a, a American football team. Okay. That makes sense. I'm, I'm going to go with American football. Um, there's definitely a sports team, the Minnesota Vikings. But in the town of Madison, Minnesota, there is a statue of a cod named Lou T. Fisk. <laughs> um, apparently in a lot of high Scandinavian population towns, there's actually um, annual Lutefisk dinners at churches. Amazing. Which is great, and I just... I love that this food exists. Um, <laughs> I should say actually as well, because um, it specifically mentioned stockfish in Olas Magnus. Apparently okay. that's a kind of um, Atlantic cod which migrates um, past northern Norway to in order to spawn. And it's basically a... Like, stockfish is a huge thing in Norway. As like a seasonal thing, wow. often, often served with mushy peas, potatoes, and bacon cubes. Oh, sounds pretty good. I love a mushy pea. Although there is a town in Norway called uh, Trondelag, where they serve it with syrup and brown cheese. Did you say syrup? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think we need to do a separate local ladder on brown cheese at some point. Because that's an yes. interesting substance. Yeah, I think I've seen that like on uh, TV before, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, w I would love to know more about that. Uh, but yeah, that is Lutefisk. I hope the Swedes have been satisfied. <laughs> we have mollified the Swedes by discussing their national cuisine. Even though I think I did mostly mention Norway, because both countries claim it. <laughs> Um, so yeah, as mentioned, we have a tumbler and 
theoretically a Twitter, although sometimes it just doesn't work for me. Um, but both of those are bread and thread. Yes. Oh, you just reminded me to put pictures on the Tumblr as well, actually. Mm-hmm. That's probably a good idea. Um, yes, uh, Twitter, Tumblr. Um, you can email us at breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com um, if you would, um, if you know more about some of the things we talked about, if you want to say hi, if you want to suggest an episode. If you're someone who's tried lutefisk, because I couldn't find a description of what it tastes like beyond fish. <laughs> like it's it's strongly fishy. Is all I've all I've managed to gather. Okay, it's, it's like ultra fish. Well, it's it's dried, so it's I guess it's concentrated. Mm. Um. But if you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash bread and thread and get access to monthly recipes and a Discord server where we hang out, talk about things that we have made, things that we're cooking, things we've watched. Uh, We now have a channel called The Library where we share just interesting things that we've seen or read. So come, come hang out with us. Thank you for listening and we will see you next time.